We have got to do something to get this economy back going again, full steam, because right now it seems that the labor shortage is the only thing that's holding it up. This is Under the Dome. On today's episode, we'll take a closer look at North Carolina Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson. For the News and Observer and NC Insider, I'm Brian Murphy, your host for this episode of Under the Dome. It's Friday, June 4th. I'm joined by Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson, who won his seat in 2020 and is the first black lieutenant governor in North Carolina history. Lieutenant Governor, thanks so much for joining us on the Under the Dome podcast. Thank you for having me here. It's a pleasure. Yeah, let's start with something a little fun. Uh, I used to work in Idaho. There was a situation out there where the uh, governor left town and the lieutenant governor uh, became the acting governor. She issued a couple of executive orders, um, or at least one executive order. The governor came back and quickly undid that. Um, The North Carolina law, I believe, is pretty similar. If the governor is out of town, you you become the acting governor. Have you thought about what you would do if, if that situation happened in North Carolina? I, I don't know. I'd probably do something to drive the left really crazy. I'd probably pass constitutional carry or something like that. I don't know. I'd do something. It'd have to be something to really infuriate them. Has, has that happened since you've been elected? Has, has the governor gone out of town? I, I have no idea. I have. I don't have too much contact with him. He's kind of secretive. So, uh, Is that something you've thought about? Something, you know, what would happen if you were acting governor? I, I have. We've thought about that quite a bit. Uh, what would happen if I had to step into that role and we have uh, we have confidence that we're surrounded by a team of people that uh, and a group of people that could uh, uh, pull us through that and help us do that job with no problem. So we're, we're we have a lot of confidence in our team. So we believe we could do that, no problem. What uh, you know what what's been the most interesting part of the job or, or the most unexpected thing you know part of the job? Now you're you're relatively new to politics and you're you're in such an important position. I think the most uh, the the thing that has really been impressed upon me the most. I've always known how I'm not I'm not going to say I've known how deep. I've always known about you know the bureaucracy so to speak, but you just don't know how deep it runs until you actually become a part of it and see it. And uh, it's one of the things uh, one of the things that I really would love to work on with other other legislators is to be able to reduce the size of bureaucracy in our government so that uh, we can streamline things and make things a lot more efficient uh, in, in North Carolina's government. But that's probably the most shocking thing. The best thing, the best experience that I have, I've had, besides, of course, traveling and meeting all the great people in North Carolina, is presiding over the Senate. That is something that I've never done before in any capacity, and it's been an absolutely fantastic experience. I absolutely love it. One of the things that you've spent a lot of time on is, is talking about these social studies standards uh, across the across the state. It's been a a big uh, point of contention, I think, in, in your first months on the job. Um, wh- where does that stand? I know there was a meeting yesterday. Where, and, and are you comfortable with where those standards are at this point? I am not. I'm, I'm not comfortable with the, the standards as as, as they are written. Uh, I think if we allow them to stay where they are unchallenged, it's going to lead to some very bad things. And so we are continuing to, ten- we are continuing to make moves uh, to do what we can to mitigate those things. And the thing that we're doing in on our capacity is the uh, the task force that we've started against uh, indoctrination in the classroom. And I think that's gonna go a long way to starting the process. Cause this, this is not gonna be an easy fix. Uh, it's the long tedious process of uh, solving this thing and ending this, uh, what I, you know, what's turning out to be quite, quite frankly, a crisis in education. Uh, it's going to take a long time to solve it, but I believe this is the beginning of it. 
you've, you've talked, you've used that word indoctrination. I think you use leftist indoctrination. What, what is it about the standards? What is it about what's being taught in schools that you think is, is indoctrinating kids in North Carolina? Well, what we see is we, we see a lot of anti, anti-American bias in, in the standards. Um, the one thing that uh, a lot of news outlets and a lot of folks, uh, a lot of our opposition love to say about us is that we want to, quote, whitewash history, that we don't, don't want to teach about the bad things in history. That is not what we want to do. I'm a student of history, and I know for a fact you cannot teach the history of the United States without teaching the terrible things that have, that have happened in our history. And we can't hide anything from our from our young people, or from our students. We have to teach them about the horrors of slavery. We have to teach them about the injustice of Jim Crow. We have to teach them about all the things that uh, women have gone through to have to, to gain things like the access to, to the right to vote and equal rights. We have to teach them that. But along with that, we cannot teach our young people that our system of government is racist because it has been that unique system of government in America that we have used to confront racism and bigotry and sexism. And so that's what we see in these standards that we're diametrically opposed to, that they characterize the American system of government as racist, and it is not. We have used this unique system of government to fight racism, sexism, and bigotry at every turn. And uh, for the most part, we have won at every turn as well using those things. And so those are the things that we're opposed to in those standards. Is it a is it a matter of degree or do you think it's it's a larger fight than that? I think it's a much larger fight than that. I think what we're seeing right now, uh, you know, people have been talking about indoctrination in schools for many, many decades. It started in earnest uh, in higher education many, many years ago. Uh, but now we're seeing it trickle down to even the lowest lowest grades, uh, grades one through five. We're seeing a lot of this uh, leftist dogma being pushed on our students. And, uh, I, I, you know, I, I dare say it's, it's, it, it is a problem. It is a problem. The, what we've done so far with our task force, just starting off in these last two months, the amount of feedback that we've gotten has been incredible. And we've, we've been steadily going through that information and trying to decide what our next steps are going to be to present this information, not only to the public, uh, but to the legislature uh, to see what we can do to bring some fairness and accountability to the classroom. Because right now, in many places, parents are not getting satisfaction when they're taking their complaints to their local uh, boards. The task force is designed to be a place that parents can complain um, about about what's being taught in the schools uh, if they don't feel comfortable going to their local boards. How many complaints have you gotten? Have you gotten a lot of complaints? We've gotten quite a few. We've gotten we've got uh, quite a few uh, more. I believe more than 400 complaints, solid complaints. And we're, we're like I said, we're going to go through those things and we're going to we're going to highlight the ones that we think capture a, a great snapshot of what we see going on and uh, present those things. Um, one thing I do want to mention with this, it, this is not something where we're trying to demonize teachers. That's been another argument that's been made that we're browbeating teachers, that we're demonizing teachers. Uh, we need to make this point clear. A lot of the complaints that we're getting is from teachers, teachers who are being are being forced to teach things and being forced to be trained in ways that they are diametrically opposed to. And so uh, this is not to demonize teachers. It's not to uh, demonize education. This is the this is an effort to continue to, to try to continue to make education in this state even better. We have fantastic administrators, teachers and educational professionals all across the state. What we want to do is make sure that the classroom is fair and, and, and equal for everyone so that everybody has a voice and no, nothing is being forced on anyone uh, against their will. 
I, I was educated in North Carolina, uh, moved there in the fifth grade and, and went all the way through college in the public schools in, in North Carolina. W- one thing that surprised me, um, you know, I never learned about the, the Wilmington race riots or the Wilmington massacre. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was so much history to condense to condense into a, to a school year or to even an academic career. How, how do you make sure there is a balance uh, between um, teaching people uh, about America's greatness uh, and and teaching about America's uh, struggles or shortcomings? Uh, again, I don't think you can do one without the other. You cannot teach the greatness of America without the the, the shortcomings of America. You can't do it. As a, and from where I sit, that's what makes this nation so great. We have faced so many tremendous struggles in this nation. We faced the issue of slavery. We faced the issue of Jim Crow. We faced the issue of women's suffrage and equal rights for women. Uh, and we continue to face struggles on, on all those fronts. But at every turn, we turn to our unique system of government, our, the words of our founding documents, our constitution, our court of law to fight those things. And we see it every turn. We use those things to win and come out on top for, uh, for true justice and victory. So uh, that's what we want to teach folks. We want to make sure that, yes, you understand that we had these struggles, but we were able to overcome these struggles and then teach them why we were able to overcome them and how. And it's through that exceptional uh, form of government that we have. Um, you use, use the past tense there. Do you think that those struggles are over? I do not. I think we, we face those struggles every day in, in, in pockets all across the country. As long as there's human beings on the earth, we're always going to have those struggles. But I truly believe that in, di- that in this nation, uh, it is easier to face those issues in this nation than it is on any other, any other place on earth. And it is because, again, because of the unique system of government that we have. When you uh, when you ran for lieutenant governor, did you get any sense that this was going to be an issue that you'd spend so much time on? Oh, absolutely. We knew from the very beginning. It was one of the things that helped me make this decision. Education is something I'm very passionate about. For those who may not know, uh, before I decided to run for lieutenant governor in my uh, personal life, I was working and going to school at the same time. My goal was to be a, a history professor at the college level. And so education is something I'm very passionate about. And because I knew that the lieutenant governor uh, sat on the state school board and had a voice there, a voting voice there. It's one of the reasons why I decided to run for the office. Um, have you been, this fight has heated up so quickly. I know it's, it's been tied into some of the critical race theory that's being talked about at, at the congressional level. Um, are you surprised that it's, it's become such a forefront issue so quickly? Or did you anticipate that when you, when you were running? Oh, no, we knew we knew that it was. Uh, we knew that things like the 1619 Project and the critical race theory would be a, a, a focal point for what what has been commonly characterized as indoctrination. Uh, you know, once we learned about critical race theory and the 1619 Project and other folks did as well, uh, we saw uh, we knew that people would automatically realize the dreadful effect that that could have on our education system and on our society at large. And there would be a lot of pushback against that. And uh, of course, it's, we, that's proven to be the case. Uh, people are not taking this line down and they're pushing back against it. And uh, in our capacity as lieutenant governor, we're going to continue to do that as well. The, the 1619 Project, for, for those listening who aren't familiar, is a series of essays from, from the New York Times that, that sort of argues that the country was true founding was in 1619 when the first slaves were brought to America and not in 1776 when the Declaration of Independence and, and the war for freedom with the British. Uh, so their true founding is, is 1619. Um, I, I bring that up in the context of Nicole Hannah-Jones, one of the primary authors of that project. 
uh, has been offered a five-year contract at, uh, at UNC in the journalism department, uh, but not offered tenure. And that's become a, a, a big issue in the state. Um, I, I know that's not necessarily a decision you get to make, but are, are you okay with her, A, being a professor, uh, a night chair at, at UNC? And do you think she should have been offered tenure as, as other night chairs have been offered? Well, I'm not speaking in my capacity as lieutenant governor here. Uh, but if it was up to me, was would I hire her to teach journalism to students? Absolutely not. Not based on what she wrote in the 1619 project. Uh, largely, what she wrote in the 1619 project was it was hammered, and and this is the thing that was in, that impressed me about it. It was hammered not only by uh, scholars on the on the right in the middle, but also scholars who are on the hard left. Uh, roundly dismissed the content of the 1619 project. And and because of that, you can't help but, you know, almost call it yellow journalism. And uh, I, I would not personally, uh, I would not personally want her on my staff teaching journalism. Uh, the folks at UNC, in U, at UNC saw it a little different. Uh, I'm, you know, I've heard many, many stories surrounding that, so I'm not going to speak on, on why she wasn't offered tenure. Uh, but uh, I have absolutely no confidence in the person that wrote that uh, wrote those series of essays. And uh, I uh, am not comfortable with her teaching young people journalism. I, um, I'll, I'll wrap th I'll wrap this up. Do, do you think, you know, obviously the UNC system has been a crown jewel of, of North Carolina for a long time, um, even before I moved to the state. Uh, you know, people talked about the, the great public education system. Are you at all worried about any damage being done to, to the university system or to the school with this fight being so public? No, I don't think that this fight can do anything but, again, help continue to perfect education in this state. This is a crucial issue. Uh, I'm going to say this plain. We cannot have educators in the classroom dividing students by race, uh, gender, uh, sexual orientation. We cannot do that. We did that one time in this country, and the effects were absolutely dreadful. We cannot go backwards. We need to continue to move forward. We have made great strides in the area in the era in the area of racial harmony in this country. We need to look at what we have and try to preserve it and make it even better. And teaching critical race theory is not the way to do that. We need to teach people about the common interest that they have in this nation and the common interest that we have in this nation, the common story that we have in this nation is that we have used our unique system of government to overcome trouble and injustice at every turn. And we've been victorious over using that. That's the story we need to be teaching our children. And I believe that that's the story that will truly bring them together and not tear them apart. You, you uh, a couple weeks ago, months ago, at this point, time is time is running together on me. Uh, you considered a run for for the U.S. Senate in uh, 2022. Richard Burr is retiring. Uh, that's an open seat, which doesn't come along very often in North Carolina. Um, it sounded like I, I saw a video that you put together. It sounded like you you really were going to do it, and I heard from others that that got the sense that you were going to do it. Uh, you decided not to. Can you take me inside that decision making process a little bit? Well, you know. Um... It was, it was a decision I, I made uh, for myself and for my family and for the people of North Carolina. I made a commitment to the people of North Carolina when I decided to run for lieutenant governor to fulfill the duties of the lieutenant governor and do what I could uh, in this capacity. Once we finish uh, fulfilling that duty as lieutenant governor for this term, uh, we will undertake the next steps that we need to take. And I truly believe that the best thing that we can do is stay right here at home and do work for the people of North Carolina uh, to continue to build this state. And so uh, my commitment lies here 
with this state. And that is the reason why. And of course, with my family. And that's the reason why we decided against that run. What intrigued you about about the Senate? Well, you know, we had a whole lot of our supporters who really believe in our message, really believe in us. Uh, we took a look at some numbers that were very intriguing. We took a look at it for we took a look at it for a while. But ultimately, again, we decided that our best work can be done right here in our in this state for the people of this state. I, I talked to some people obviously covering the Senate race is one of the things I, I, I'd focus on primarily. And, uh, you know, a lot of Republicans thought and, and Democrats, for that matter, thought you would be the most formidable candidate if you got in, that, that you would be able to consolidate a lot of support behind you. What, what do you think it is about you that you're a relative newcomer? So, some of the other candidates in the race have, have been in office for a long time, have won some statewide races themselves. What is it about you or your message that you think uh, ha- had them had them fearful? I think it goes towards our message and the way that our, uh, my team and I, the way we deliver that message across the state. Uh, it really is something that the people of North Carolina have really uh, embraced. They've embraced us. They've embraced our message. Uh, they've embraced our work ethic. And uh, we believe that's the secret uh, behind it. And uh, because of that, uh, again, uh, that's why we feel so strongly about staying right here and doing the work for the people of North Carolina. Uh, obviously, you know, Lieutenant Governor, the next step up, up is governor. Have you, have you considered running for governor? And is that something that you've thought about? We have, of course, we, you know, that's the logical next step with that seat being open. Uh, we, we're considering it. We're looking at it and uh, we're making our plans from there. Uh, no, uh, no announcements yet, but uh, we, we certainly are considering taking a look at it. For, for those that don't know, you know, you sort of shot to, to national stardom with a, a speech that you gave at a, at a city council meeting. Um, when you gave that speech, did you have any sense what the next three, four years of your life were going to look like? Absolutely not. You know, when I gave that speech, I thought that, you know, a few people would, you know, tell me on social media, hey, I saw you on social media yelling at the city council. Great job. I had no idea what it would become. But, uh, you know, I tell everybody that, that was a moment that was orchestrated not by me, but by God. And uh, he is the one that's leading all of my steps and all of this. So we just uh waiting for his next orders and just listening and, and waiting on his will to be done. You know, you look at someone like President Trump, who, who obviously didn't come through the ranks of, of uh, you know, politics to get to the presidency. You look at yourself uh, with the advent of social media and the ability to get that message out. Is it easier than ever for people to to get uh, that message out there and to get into offices like yours? Absolutely. It is. Uh, social media has taken a lot of the monopoly that the uh, the networks had on information uh, the internet, of course, has, has done that, uh, you know, through social media. Uh, but it absolutely is, you know, you can speak directly to your supporters on social media. And, uh, that's what we've done to a, to a large extent. And, uh, we're going to continue to do that because taking the message directly to the people, I believe is the, the best way to deliver it. Uh, you're, you're headed to Greenville, uh, for this weekend's, uh, North Carolina state GOP convention. If you're listening to this, uh, after, after the weekend, um, President Trump is, is going to speak on Saturday. What, what do you want to hear from President Trump uh, when, when he gives that speech? And do you expect him to get into uh, into the Senate race at all? Or do you think he'll keep his conversation different? I have no idea. You know, with President Trump, you never can tell what you're going to get. But whatever it is, I'm sure it's going to be good. And I'm sure it's going to be exciting, exciting. And I cannot wait. Uh, la- last thing I'll leave you with. Uh, you've been involved in this federal uh, unemployment benefits um, discussion. I saw that you've uh, you've called for North Carolina to get out of the program uh, earlier than the September deadline and mm-hmm. and perhaps use some of that money uh, for back to work bonuses. I, I read a letter that you wrote that said 
you're somewhat reluctant in that position, that, that you don't want to reward people for going back to work now uh, when they could have maybe gone back to work earlier. Can you explain a little bit your thought process and how you came to the conclusion that, that yes, maybe this money should be repurposed for a back-to-work bonus? Well, I, I can tell you this. Uh, the, the solution in that bill is not a perfect solution and it's not the solution that, uh, that I would most hope for. The solution that I would hope for is that we would have a governor who would step up and cut those funds off from the federal level and encourage the people of North Carolina uh, to get back to work and do everything that he could to continue to build this economy back up after this pandemic. That would be the best solution. That being said, we don't have that option, it seems. And so uh, that bill was is an attempt to try to do something uh, to help out business owners, business owners to get workers back in the door uh, so that they can uh, continue to survive in this economy and, and continue to build this economy. I understand that some work is being done on the bill on the House side. Uh, we'll see how that goes. But uh, as a legislative as a legislative body, we have got to try to do something to help the workers of this state and help the business owners of this state to get this economy back going again, full steam, because right now it seems that the, the, the labor shortage is the only thing that's holding it up. Have you, uh, and this is uh, related to that, and I promise I won't hold you too much longer, but um, have, have you thought that the governor or the state as, as a whole have done a good job with the vaccine rollout and with, with getting people vaccinated, encouraging people to get vaccinated, to get back to, to normal? Or, or are there some things that could be done in that area? I think early on, we, we, we thought that there could be some things that could have been done a little different to make it a little smoother. Uh, but overall, I think it's been very well coordinated. Uh, you know, the one thing that we often lose sight of is how difficult it is, number one, to create a vaccine this fast. And number two, to uh, manufacture and distribute it uh, as wide as it has been in such a short period of time. That's been a, a, a giant undertaking. And I think that even though there's been some stumbles in it, I think that this state and this nation has done a fantastic job of rolling it out. I really do. It's, that's a very difficult task. Have you gotten vaccinated yourself? I have not. I have not taken the vaccine. Well, what is your uh, what's your thought process on that? My thought, well, <laughs> be, to be quite honest, I took the flu shot three years in a row and got the flu. So <laughs> <laughs> once I stopped taking the flu shot, I stopped getting the flu. So I'm a little leery of vaccines, but uh, I, I don't discourage anyone from getting the vaccine. Just like I said during the pandemic, uh, this all boils down to personal choice. If you want the vaccine as an elected official, it is my job to make sure that whatever I can do in my capacity to make sure that it is available to you. That is the job of the elected official, not to tell you to take it, not to tell you not to take it, but to make sure that if you want it, it is available to you. And I think North Carolina has done a great job of doing that. Great. Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson, I appreciate your time. Thank you for joining us on the Under the Dome podcast. And uh, I have a feeling we're going to hear a lot more from uh, Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson in the future. Thank you. We appreciate it. Great to be here. Thank you so much. Yes, sir. For more from our politics team, subscribe to the News and Observer at newsobserver.com slash subscribe. Follow us on Twitter at Under the Dome and NC Insider, and sign up for her weekly political newsletter at newsobserver.com slash newsletters. Thanks for listening.